You're listening to Distilling Theology. I'm Blake. And I'm Justin. And this is a podcast pairing discussions of theology and distilled spirits. And dad jokes. Amen. What's wrong with you people? You're not David. I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. Fatality. You know, starting a podcast about theology and distilled spirits is whiskey business. (laughs) I said that with a straight face. This is Distilling Theology. Welcome to episode 74 of Distilling Theology. I'm your host, Blake Courtright, joined as always by my co-host and uh, my partner in crime, my Baptistic brochacho, Justin Van Riper. What's going on, bro? Oh, you know me, man. Just uh, just living the dream as always. Um, it's been uh, been an interesting couple of weeks, man. Been very Indeed. hectic, very busy, but providentially wonderful. So I have uh, no complaints. I'm still here. God is good. It is what it is. So, Praise the Lord. Yeah, man. How been all right. Been? Life's been a little bit chaotic and crazy, but the Lord is good, and uh, and He is not slow about His promises. And so, as we've been uh, at my my church going through the Book of Isaiah. It's been really beautiful to see Christ presented week after week through the Gospel of Isaiah, to see mm. uh, Isaiah's prophetic visions of the Son and of the Father and of the Spirit, which ties very much into our subject tonight, as we are joined by a very special guest. Uh, he is a professor of theology at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, the author of numerous books of theology. This is Dr. Adonis Vidu. Thank you so much for your time, and welcome to the program. Thanks, guys. Great to be with you. Look forward to our conversation. Me as well. And and uh, Dr. Vidu's latest book, The Same God Who Works All Things, Inseparable Operations in Trinitarian Theology, uh, is out now. And thanks to Erdman's publishing company, we will be pro- giving away a copy of this book. Uh, so stay tuned to the end of the episode for details about how to enter. Uh, it's, a, it's a dense but really rich and challenging uh, work of theological retrieval in many ways, which we'll talk about in a bit. Um, and one that is now up there with some of my other theology proper books is something that I'm probably going to have to reread several times to fully digest, uh, as this doctrine can can do. Um, <laughs> but Justin, before we do that, what's in your glass tonight? Yeah, I'm excited. Um, I hadn't heard of this before, uh, but it's the Mr. Black Cold Brew Coffee Liqueur. It is a 25% ABV or 50 proof uh, liqueur. Um, apparently... Uh, it's also no the espresso. Es- Am I reading that? That is correctly? my bad on the note. When I emailed uh, Adonis gotcha. to set up the interview, I asked about spirits, and he said, "How about espresso?" And I said, "Well, neither Justin and I can do <laughs> that, but we'll do it. We'll do a coffee liqueur with you." It's true. It's um, true. This was yeah. Tell tell me more about um about the short about version the is it's an Australian company that was founded by a distiller and uh, a designer who turned into a coffee roaster. So they roast their coffee there. They brew their coffee, and then they do their distilled spirit and put out this liqueur. So I'm excited to try it. Uh, Dr. Fadu, what's in uh, your mug or glass tonight? Actually, you know, I'm turning the tables on you. Uh, I said espresso, but I've actually gone (laughs) tea. Uh, So I'm drinking a very special brand, uh, and I do not have any revenue from this brand. It's called Ahmad Tea. Uh, It's wild strawberry. It's a British company, and it does really amazing teas. So... Uh, it's this time of the day when, for me, this is what works. Uh, so 
I, I don't have any history of the company. I don't know, except that it's coming from Britain. So I couldn't tell you more than that. <laughs> no, we're, we're traveling internationally this week. We've got we've got British tea and Australian coffee liqueur. So on that note, we'll we'll take a sip, get a few tasting notes, and then we'll jump into the content. Cheers. Cheers. Mm. Oh man. So the the sort of coffee smell is stronger than it is a taste, I think. Um the taste yeah. seems a little bit more mellow and smooth. Um, oh, yeah. There's chocolate, toffee, cocoa. There's also a roastiness to caramel, it, caramel, which makes sense with the roasted coffee. Yeah, mm-hmm. but it's not. Yeah, but it's not overwhelming, and it's certainly not bitter. No, like this I is real nice, it and it'll fit. Um, I've actually made a Negroni with this, so equal parts gin, Ooh, actually, Campari. And then this in place of sweet vermouth. And that's just magical. And and I've also seen an old-fashioned recipe that would be an ounce of this to an ounce of rye whiskey and then a few dashes of orange bitters. And so this is, it, it was designed mm-hmm. as a mixing ingredient, but I could, I'm excited to sip this for the duration of the episode. It's kind of yeah. a nice little desserty yeah. drink right now. So I'm, uh, I'm enjoying well, it. Orange would be a good compliment to this. I can see that. Indeed. Something to but, cut through yeah. all those different, you know, Coffee, chocolate, toffee notes pulling together. Um, you know, there's there's diversity and there's unity all happening at once here. So it's a it's a good thing. Yeah, uh, I see what you're doing there. <laughs> yeah, Adonis, do you have any any uh, notes on that tea as you're as you're sipping anything stand out to you in the flavors? No, <laughs> all it's good, all strawberry. <laughs> well, amen. You know, but yeah, you know, yeah. maybe we come back to the notes. Maybe we Maybe come so. back to the notes in, in wine tasting. I think there's a wonderful analogy to um, for the the concept, the difficult concept of appropriation. So, can't we wait. might actually come back to this. Uh, Maybe then I'll talk more about my tea. I love it, <laughs> guys. Before we uh, jump in, um, as always, we're just going to open with some prayer. If you have a Valia Vision at home, which we mm-hmm. always recommend that you do, it's a fantastic collection of Puritan prayers. Um, head over to Banner of Truth and just grab one. Well worth it. Um, turn to page 36, uh, union with Christ. Let us pray. O father, thou hast made man for the glory of thyself. And when not an instrument of that glory, he is a thing of naught. No sin is greater than the sin of unbelief. For if union with Christ is the greater good, unbelief is the greatest sin. As being cross to thy command, I see that whatever my sin is, Yet no sin is like disunion from Christ by unbelief. Lord, keep me from committing the greatest sin and departing from him, for I can never in this life perfectly obey and cleave to Christ. When thou takest away my outward blessings, it is for sin, and not acknowledging that all that I have is of thee, and not serving thee through what I have, and making myself secure and hardened. Lawful blessings are the secret idols, and do most hurt. The greatest injury is in the having, the greatest good in the taking away. And love divest me of blessing, that I may glorify thee more. Remove the fuel of my sin, and may I praise the gain of little holiness, as overbalancing all my losses. The more I love thee with truly gracious love, the more I desire to love thee. And the more miserable I am at my want of love, the more I hunger and thirst after thee. The more I faint and fail in finding thee, the more my heart is broken for sin, the more I pray that it may be far more broken. 
My great evil is that I do not remember the sins of my youth. Nay, the sins of one day I forget the next. Keep me from all things that turn to unbelief or lack a felt union with Christ. Mm. Amen. 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 Wow. <laughs> That's really good. Yeah. <laughs> so, on that humbling and, and conscientious note, let's step into a doctrine that I think can become a bit obscure or seem um, esoteric. Uh, it's one of those things that, you know, you hear people talk about Trinitarianism and then eventually you'll get into divine simplicity and then inseparable. And, and these things kind of, they, they seem to require a little bit more digging in our day and age to discover them. And, and that mm-hmm. brings me to a question for you, Dr. Badu. What is theological retrieval? Uh, it's a term I've heard tossed around a bit in these discussions. Well, you could say it's a work of um, getting theology back to its proper theological nature, making theology Mm. theological again, Um, recovering what is distinctly theological in our Christian confession, because the danger is that we translate our Christian confession into the language of culture, cultural sensitivities, sensibilities. Um, that we forget that there's something truly unique about the Christian faith uh, that cannot be entirely translated into the kind of the language of culture, the language of philosophy, and so on. So, so retrieval is, um, is, is in, in some sense, um, a work of um, recovering what has been lost. <clears throat> and one of these concepts uh, that have been lost, you've already mentioned simplicity, inseparable operations, divine aseity. Um, and so on. So, yeah. Yeah. This is one of those doctrines that, believe it or not, I I have a minor in theology through uh, my college that I went to and somehow never even heard this term. Um, and I think that's, that's greatly tragic because of the nature of the doctrine being so incredibly, I think, I, I think it's very significant. I think it's an important doctrine. Mm-hmm. And a misapplication or misunderstanding of it can lead to all kinds of errors. Um, so if you could define inseparable operations, what what would you call, how would you define that doctrine for somebody who perhaps has never heard it? Uh, you know, we call ourselves distilling theology. We like to distill these doctrines down into something a little bit more palatable for those who perhaps are new to theology or maybe this is something that they haven't thought about before. So if you could define that for us, that would be wonderful. Yeah, sure. Um, I think your experience, Justin, of um, having gone to Bible college or theological college and not having mm-hmm. heard about the doctrine is um, is certainly unfortunate. I, I'm afraid it's it's rather common. Um, I, I do think that we are in the middle of um, a renaissance of interest in inseparable mm-hmm. operations. Um, and uh, maybe we'll get a little bit into, into the history of how, of how this happened, how this renaissance has, has happened and, and what led to it. Um, but I think the future looks a lot better for the, the students of theology, perhaps in the next generation uh, going to theological college. It'll be, it'll be hard not to hear about it, not, not to come across it, because so many people are talking about it these days. Yes. Um, let me put it this way. Um, <clears throat> We talk about God and we talk about the being of God, the kind of being that God is. Um, and then we talk about the works of God. But these two concepts need to be correlated with each other. Um, because God's mm-hmm. 
actions, God's operations, as we may call them, God's economy, as it has been called classically, um, really follow God's being. Um, we have to take into consideration the kind of agent that God is, the kind of being that God is, in, in order to understand the way in which he works. Um, and I think the, the doctrine of inseparable operations is trying to do exactly that. It's trying to correlate the idea that God is one substance in three persons um, with the way in which God works. And because God is one being, one substance, uh, and not three substances, um, the operations of God are always the operations of a single agent. Um, I did not say a single person, um, but a single agent. There's still the question of what the persons are exactly and so on. Um, But that means that there's a certain unity to the works of God. Um, And this is a unity that's different than the kind of unity we find between works of separate agents, different agents. Like you and I, the three of us are doing a podcast together, right? We have Mm -hmm. this collective action uh, that we're doing together, but each of us are playing our own individual roles. And each of us are carrying out our own individual actions in this podcast, right? Uh, But somehow these actions come together, they cohere in this larger whole. So we might say that the individual actions of Justin Adonis and Blake are parts of this greater whole, which is the podcast. Mm. But obviously the the implication here is that the podcast is obviously greater than the individual actions of each one of us. That's why we're doing it. It'd be quite weird if we were just talking by ourselves here. Um, So similarly with the action of God, um, because Father, Son, and Spirit are not three individuals um, simply cooperating or collectively uniting their actions, uh, that they, mm-hmm. in some way, they act as a single agent. Mm-hmm. The doctrine of inseparable operations is trying to get exactly at that. What does this mean? How, do I, how are we to understand this unity? How are we to still perceive the distinctions within, the, within this unified operation because we don't want to be modalist we don't want to say we don't want to be unitarian mm. we want to be tr- trinitarian so so basically i'm trying to explain all these things but we'll get into that i'm sure a little bit later on for sure thank you oh, yeah. that raises the question uh that you had brought up at the ets conference that i got i got to attend with tony arsenal of reform brotherhood um and i remember it when you started talking about some of these things at the beginning I, my head was spinning a little as you were explaining uh, <laughs> the difference between hard and, and soft inseparability, as you call it. Because I think I'm very familiar, and most of our listeners would probably relate quite comfortably with the concept that you, that you define as soft inseparability. And this hard inseparability at, at the outset of the conference felt very uh, foreign and, and obtuse um, but then, and opaque. But, but then by the end of it, uh, after we'd gone through scripture and, and through this kind of uh, redemptive history overview that you do that that I want to touch on a little bit later. Um, it it clicked for me, and I was really grateful mm-hmm. for the way that you walked us through that. Mm-hmm. So, before we jump into that, um, can you differentiate what is hard and what is soft inseparability as you've as you've used those terms? Right. Um, so I, I define it as soft, and these are my terms, by the way. Uh, I felt like I needed to have a couple of terms that distinguish between a a mistaken understanding of this inseparability and a correct and 
ancient, original understanding of this inseparability. Because the thing that I found is that a lot of people were using the language of inseparability, but really what they meant was just cooperation. So what I mean by soft inseparability is this idea of what we have here. We have a soft inseparability here in the sense that we are cooperating, we're contributing together to something. We are uniting our efforts and our individual actions into a greater whole. That's what I'm calling soft inseparability. Hard inseparability is the notion that um, there's only one agent, right? There's one agent, there's, there's one source of action, one source of the divine action, uh, and not three individual agents. So the distinction really is just, is just um, sort of uh, tracking with that. Soft inseparability means three agents coming together to act. And this really, you know, takes us in the direction of what has been called social, social trinity. Mm. The notion that the trinity is basically three individuals that are together mm. sharing in the genus of God um, and acting together and so on. And this is exactly what the earlier uh, proponents, the earliest proponents of the doctrine of the trinity did not say. So the interesting thing about hard inseparability um, is that it was the universal position East and West in the church. Hmm. And it preceded, you know, it preceded the theological disagreements over the Trinity, over the filioque, and so on. Hmm. I was surprised to find that, given what I had been taught, that the Cappadocians really are social, kind of like the, the original social Trinitarians and so on, and it doesn't quite line up. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I think naturally this this has to do with a, this relates to very closely with a lot of the other classical doctrines, right? Um, divine simplicity or, or aseity or God's impassibility, which we talked about, I think, last week. In in what ways does the inseparable inseparable operations relate to these doctrines, and is this the logical conclusion of those doctrines? Yes and no. Um, <clears throat> I think it's, I think it's, um, it's actually very interesting that, I mean, what I try to argue in the book is that it's primarily a biblical doctrine, that inseparable operation is primarily the kind of the biblical insight mm. mm-hmm. uh, on the basis of which we have a doctrine of the Trinity in the first place. Yes. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's not primarily a derivation from the unity of God and, and the simplicity of mm-hmm. God. Uh, it's what gets us to the doctrine of the Trinity. In other words, mm. and this is what I do in chapter in, in the first chapter of the book, I say that precisely because Jesus, to Jesus are ascribed exactly the actions of the Father and primarily the, the, the quintessential act, divine act mm. of creation. That is why we claim that Jesus is divine, that he, because he does exactly the same things that the Father is doing, not the similar kind of things, but exactly the same things that the father has already been, been said to have done. Mm. Um, so that's how we get to it. So in other words, it's, it's basically an inductive, it's an inductive doctrine, but it can also, you can also f- get to it deductively from the divine unity. Mm. Right. And in, 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 in saying that and in, in showing that it, it shows itself to, to be a part of a coherent whole, I think. Um, which yeah. includes divine simplicity and the saity and um, maybe not so much impassibility here, but 
Um, I think that's perhaps one step removed from this, um, but sure. but still fairly close close to it. So I think so. What I do is in a, in chapter one, I kind of show the the deductively uh, the doctrine of uh, from scripture the doctrine of inseparable operation, and then in chapter two, I show I, I get to it a little more deductively, working from the unity and from the very nature of the Trinity, why we should rightfully expect God's activity to be inseparable. Mm. Well, as we're about to jump into the biblical theological framework, Justin and I have pulled up this week's sponsor, which is Lagos 9, uh, one of the most advanced Bible softwares available. And for our listeners, they have a special exclusive discount that you can go to lagos.com slash distilling theology, take 10% off your first order and get five free books. And Justin, I don't know about you, I've been using it every single week as we do these episodes to pull passages up, to pull up Greek and Hebrew lexicons, to pull up references. Dr. Fadu's book is available on Lagos. Uh, I don't know, Justin, if you have anything else to say about it before we jump in. Yeah, um, imagine having a, a library like the one you see behind me, <laughs> all, <laughs> all condensed into one uh, resource. Uh, not only, I think, um, do I enjoy the fact that everything's right at my fingertips, but just the amount of time that a software like that yeah. saves uh, is immeasurable. I mean, we know that time is money uh, in this day and age, and so being able to save that kind of time, uh, really, it's worth its weight in gold. So, uh, yeah, head over there, logos.com uh, slash distilling theology. Uh, five free books, 10% off. Google and it's indexed as well. It is. Yes. Unlike the library behind you. <laughs> It's indexed. <laughs> well, good. Our patrons can see this library behind me. Yeah, and, and that searchability <laughs> is wonderful. When I'm when I'm looking for a quote yes. from Voss's uh, Reform Dogmatics, Calvin's Institutes, or something from Bavinck, I have it all there. Because w- w- this happened a couple of weeks ago, where I remembered a quote from Calvin. I had no idea <laughs> the the chapter mm-hmm. or article, mm-hmm. and I started to search for the quote, and I was able to get right there in a matter of seconds, and. So that's been really tremendous and useful. So guys, check it out. Thanks again to Lagos for sponsoring this episode. Now let's jump back into the content. So Dr. Fadu, at the conference, uh, the ETS conference, you spoke about this kind of redemptive history look through the scriptures and showing us in various uh, aspects of redemptive history, the inseparable operations of the Trinity. So I was wondering if you could give us a little, um, you know, 10,000 foot view of of that, and then we can maybe jump a little bit deeper. Yeah, I mean, what I was trying to do there, um, and I should perhaps mention that I um, a roughly revised uh, version of this uh, presentation, a shorter, maybe more condensed version, is on the Gospel Coalition website. Um, because I really do think that the doctrine of inseparable operations is really close to the heart of the gospel, and it unlocks for us the meaning of the gospel. Um, I think it, I think it is one of those doctrines that I think the word you used is, uh, um, well, I'm not exactly sure which one you used, obtuse or something that you, yeah. you use that word. It's difficult. It's, it's a puzzling doctrine. Um, mm. and it's puzzling because we are, well, we just don't see God acting around us all the time. You know, we're used to the action of individual human agents, but we're not really, you know, we don't have, we don't comprehend God. We're, we're not at God's level so that we can grasp his operations from, from his own point of view. So we only see the effects of God's, uh, God's actions. And we have to mm. look at these effects and try to correlate them. Okay. Who, with the agency, with the, with the agent who's, who's causing these effects. Otherwise, 
Um, otherwise, we're simply falling into mythology. You know, we're simply confusing God with his effects and, and, and we're turning God into a finite cause in the world, something we don't want to do. Um, mm-hmm. So, so what, I, what I'm trying to say is that, um, yeah, this doctrine is a puzzling doctrine because God is the kind of being that is not easily comprehensible. He's not comprehensible, right? And I, I just love Augustine. Um, I have to, I mean, I brought him, I brought Augustine up in the conference uh, presentation and Augustine has this thing where he says, if you don't understand this doctrine, um, then, then go and take some time to pray and fast, repent, purify your soul and so on and come back. (laughs) And I always thought, wait a minute, what's easy, easy, just you know, giving us one of those, um, is it just dribbling with our minds or something with our concepts? I, I really think there's something to this. Mm-hmm. I really think there's something to the understanding of the mm-hmm. Trinity, getting deeper into the doctrine of the Trinity, which is really only possible uh, through fasting and prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, because it's not simply a theoretical knowledge. Um, it's more of an mm-hmm. experiential knowledge. It's a kind of a tasting um, a, ta- a, real, a true tasting of God, mm-hmm. um, uh, which, is, which is another project that I'm working on. Um, but I'm, I'll, let me come back to this sort of, uh, you know, uh, 10,000 10, feet or whatever um, flyover. I really do think this is not primarily a metaphysical doctrine, but it's a doctrine that unlocks, unlocks the gospel. And the reason why it unlocks the gospel is that without it, we encounter, we turn the gospel into a bunch of monstrosities, basically and into a bunch of um, understandings that are really betraying the heart of the gospel. Um, and the first thing I, I did with there was to start with the notion of creation. And I said, if, if inseparable operations is not true, in other words, if this hard inseparability is not true, um, then it would appear that the father himself is not creator because the new Testament ascribes creation to the son to Christ and says nothing that was made um, was made without him, that he made everything and everything that was made was made by him. So if that's the case, and he's a separate agent from the father, then the father is not the creator. The son is the creator. And then we sort of fall back into a kind of Gnostic religion where the father is behind the curtain, right? And he creates through this kind of demiurge which is the son, right? So he's really not the good creator father. Hmm. And this is the first point at which I think that the, you know, the doctrine of creation, the doctrine of the Trinity really come together um, and it raises really this very important issue. And I think this is really the linchpin for the, for the divine Christology of the New Testament and for the doctrine of the Trinity that, that Christ himself or the son is, is said to have been the creator. Right. So that's the first one. The second one I, I got into was, uh, was the incarnation. Right. And I said, if father and son are separate, separate, separate beings, separate agents, then, then Philip's question in John 14 is really justified because Philip says, great, it's phenomenal. We see that you're doing great things and we know that you're revealing the father. Can, we, can you now show us the father? Hmm. Right. And Jesus is sort of frustrated that, hey, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In other words, the Father is doing, the Father dwelling in me is, is doing these works. You know, so if, the, if, if inseparable operations is not true, if, the, if hard inseparability is not true, right, then Philip, Philip's question was, 
precisely to the point. And Jesus's answer is precisely wrong. I mean, precisely unsatisfying, unfulfilling, hmm. kicking the can down the road type of answer. You know, um, hmm. and then then the cross, right? I think this is the third moment that I that I got into yeah. the cross. If if inseparable operations is not true, um, then the cross looks really problematic. It looks like the father behind the curtains having to be placated by someone other than himself. And, and we get this caricature, I think, in the doctrine of the atonement where the father has one set of attributes, wrath being primary among them, wrath and holiness and so on. Mm. And then the son, the son is the one that apparently has the mercy that the father doesn't. Apparently, he, he, apparently the son has this, has this ability to be in touch with humanity and atone on behalf of humanity to placate the father. But imagine what that does to the doctrine of divine simplicity. It's, it, it basically says that the father and the son have different sets of attributes. Mm. Right. So it destroys that doctrine, basically. Mm. Mm-hmm. So that means that, um, you know, it raises all these, it, you know, it, it raises this sort of specter of, of polytheism, basically. Hmm. Um, <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And also the, the whole idea of, of the punishment of the son is the father punishing the son. It raises all these, I think, really, really legitimate questions um, of legitimate objection of divine child abuse. It's hmm. a legitimate objection if the doctrine is misunderstood and if the doctrine is is you know spelled out in that way if the story is told in that way it raises this legitimate question Hmm. right um ascension and pentecost yeah i think the goodness of inseparable operation in, in terms of pentecost is that um in having the spirit we have christ we don't have someone other than christ someone second best to christ you know, like a placeholder or something like that, but we truly have Christ. And that's kind of the language, the language of the New Testament. I would love to develop that theme at some, some later point in my life, because I think there's a sense in which, in which there's a crystal formation of the, of the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit first indwells and imbibes Christ. And, and then, and then he is inflected to us. He is, he is, he is inflected to us from the humanity of Christ, having first spiritualized and pneumatized the humanity of christ he comes to us precisely as the humanity of christ i think this is the beautiful part beautiful thing about this about inseparable operation that that this this indwelling indwelling spirit is precisely the humanity of jesus christ Hmm. now and and paul has this sort of intriguing and really perplexing text that christ has become a life-giving spirit Christ became a life-giving spirit. And it sounds like modalism, right? He, he was Christ and he became mm-hmm. a spirit, right? It's obviously, obviously not the teaching there, but, but there's also a, a, a dynamic unity between, between Christ and the Holy Spirit. So the good news of inseparable operations is, is in having one of these persons, the Holy Spirit, you have the whole Godhead, mm. right? And they're, and they're all active mm-hmm. together, producing the same effects and so on. So I think maybe that's enough. Have I, have I, did I cover what you wanted me to cover? Oh, that's excellent. I, I think I would encourage folks, as you did, go look up Adonis Vidu, Inseparable Operations, read the Gospel mm-hmm. Coalition article about unlocking the gospel, because um, it's important. And I can, I can hear, as mm-hmm. you're speaking to us and, and as you were in the conference, the passion 
that this isn't just a an abstract nice theoretical idea as you said like a metaphysical just something to sit back and and think about but it's really tied to the heart of what we believe and as you were talking there about um this view of cosmic child abuse that that's one of the big objections of atheism to christianity and of um you know the a lot of these progressive christians who reject penal substitutionary atonement and all these things they they say well this is cosmic child abuse you know the the father is doing this uh and i think it's beautiful mm-hmm. how this classic doctrine that that we have largely discarded and 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 now to the point that people getting theological minors or degrees maybe have never heard of is so key to protecting us from unintentionally confessing something false about god in that in that capacity but on the flip side you know when it comes to maybe some contemporary objections or or classical objections um i thought about this and justin you can read the the definition you pulled and then uh adonis you can you can answer the question but uh yeah as you're saying this, so we're, we're avoiding cosmic child abuse, but then aren't we just folding right into patripassianism now? And Justin, you want to define that for our listeners and then we'll get the answer. Yeah, so patripassianism is uh, essentially some form of modalism or associated with modalism, uh, Sabellianism and others, that uh, in, the, in that they all deny the distinct personhood of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And then, of course, teach instead that God is one person who manifests manifests himself in three different modes or forms or however you want to imagine that. In essence, uh, it says that God the Father, in becoming incarnate, he became his own son, um, which uh, is a it's a heresy. I mean, that's it's a that's a that's a big deal. It's a damnable deal. So uh, big thing to talk about. So yeah, I guess how does how does this doctrine avoid something like that? And what other sort of maybe objections have you seen coming up against this doctrine that that uh, that you think this really can can kind of avoid or eliminate? Yeah, patripassianism, patripassianism um, is a big one, um, and you're right to connect it to modalism, um, and mm-hmm. patripassianism is ba- basically an implication of modalism, yeah. um, and modalism basically argues that the distinctions between the persons are not real distinctions, uh, mm. that they're only perhaps logical mm-hmm. distinctions, but they're not real distinctions. And if they're not real distinctions, then what happens to one of the persons happens to all of them, right? So if the son dies on the cross, it means that, well, the father dies as well, and the and the spirit dies and, and so on. So, mm. um and that's basically um, patripassianism. So, how does this objection 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 um, potentially? How is it potentially triggered by my argument? What I claim in the book, I try to be fairly precise about how I define separable operations, mm-hmm. and I say that the um, if one person of the Trinity does something operate something, cre- uh, produces an effect, right? If one of the persons of the Trinity is producing an effect outside of the Trinity, right? Because, by the way, sorry to be so confusing and complexing, but <laughs> uh, the doctrine of inseparable operations only applies to the works of the Trinity outside of, outside of, the God, outside of God's self. The works of the Trinity outside of God that is in the world, the economic works of the Trinity. 
there's a flip side to this principle, which says that the works of the Trinity within the Godhead are divisible, mm. right? So the works of the Trinity outside of the Trinity are indivisible, but within the Trinity, they are divisible. And those works within the Trinity really refer to the processions, mm. right? Um, now, I, let me go back to how I defined it. Um, if one person of the Trinity produces a particular effect, then they are basically all producing it together, right? Because they're all acting from the same nature that they share, right? Now, when it comes to Patripassianism, um, death itself is not the production of an effect. To die is not to do something. To die is to have something happen to oneself. So I'm, I, I'm, I'm defining death as not an activity, but as a passivity. It's a passion. It's not an action, right? So that's why the definition is so important, because the doctrine only says that whatever God acts, he acts together. It doesn't say anything about how God is passive with regards to anything. Mm. Now, of course, God is not passive with regards to anything. That's the doctrine of impassibility if you're a classical Trinitarian theologian, right? <laughs> but the Son of God has, by the hypostatic union, he has a human nature, and that mm. human nature is passable, mm. right? So we would rightfully say that only the Son dies, because only the son has a passive or passable nature. In other words, only he has a nature that's capable of dying. Mm. The father does not die because he doesn't have a, you know, a mortal nature, nor mm. does the spirit, right? But we would rightfully say that only the son dies. We would rightfully say that God dies, Right, but we would not rightfully say that the father dies or that the son dies. Right, so this I think the objection is fairly easily uh, res uh, refuted once it is understood what inseparability applies to, and that is to mm -hmm. actions and not to states. You also brought up the hypostatic union, and yep. uh, not to I don't want to retread too much of what you and Tony talked about uh, in his mm -hmm. episode. But he made a, a comment there that I was wondering if you could you could expand on a little bit here. Uh, we call it the hypostatic union mm -hmm. for a reason, and mm -hmm. uh, we don't speak of the Son, you know, in the person of Jesus Christ having an essential union of human nature and divine nature. Yeah, could you briefly give us a, a touch on that? Yeah, it's a it's a hypostatic union in the sense that the human nature of Jesus Christ retains its humanity. Yeah, right. And it is united to the, specifically to the hypostasis of the sun. Mm -hmm. It's not united to any other hypostasis, but specifically to the hypostasis of the sun. And the hypostasis of the sun is a particular concretion, you might say, of the divine nature, mm. right? It's a particular manifestation of that divine nature, a particular existence of that divine nature, right? Uh, and that existence of the divine nature as the son is then communicated to this human nature of jesus christ so this human nature begins to exist as the son of god but and this is where maybe maybe this is what you're getting at 
But I think one really important distinction here, which, which I think can be easily lost in all the many pages there, um, is that while the operations of the Trinity are inseparable, uh, the missions of the, the Son and the mission of the Spirit are distinct. Mm. Right? The missions are distinct. And the mission, specifically the divine person of the Son, is given to the human nature of Jesus Christ. Not divinity in general, but mm. specifically the existence of God as Son, as Logos. Mm-hmm. Mm. Right? And in the mission of the Holy Spirit, the same thing. Right? So, so the missions are... Uh, the, well, the language of insep- the missions presuppose some kind of inseparability because missions presuppose the creation of an effect, the creation of the human nature of Jesus Christ. So we say that the whole Trinity creates the human nature of Jesus Christ and then gives it to the Son. Mm. Right. So there's something that has to do with inseparable operations in a mission, but it's not all of them of what a mission is, because a mission is a union, and that union is distinct. It's distinct to the persons. So this is a pretty big deal because, um, because one, another critique of inseparable operations is that it kind of makes it impossible for us to relate distinctly to the divine persons. If, if everything yeah. they do, they do together, then how do we tell them apart? Right? Well, I think that the answer to that is that, well, yeah, everything that they do, that is everything they produce, they produce together. But there is a lot more to our relation to God than what they do. It's mm. not... Between us and God are not only the divine operations, the production of effects, but the divine missions also. Mm. And I think this requires yeah. more unpacking than, than I've done in the book, but I think it's an important dimension. Yeah. Well, there's like dozens of things we could talk about regarding this doctrine. I mean, we could go on all night, but um, I want to get to the crux of why does this doctrine matter, mm-hmm. right? How are we just theologically nitpicking, right? Are we, um, are we doing that sort of how many angels can dance in the head of a needle type nitpicking or are, uh, is there more to it? And, and does it ultimately make a big difference? Uh, which I think obviously it does, but, um, and to that, uh, right. How does this doctrine affect our understanding of the gospel and how, how does that impact, um, us, uh, on an actual daily mm-hmm. basis, right? What's the application mm-hmm. of this doctrine? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it, I think it, um, it makes a big difference. Uh, it makes a big difference because it, it orders the way we talk about God. It, mm-hmm. I'm using the language of grammar. It, it spells out the grammar of how we can speak about God. And I try to say that we don't really comprehend what it means for God to act inseparably. I, I have no comprehension of this of this truth. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I know I can try to spell out what it doesn't mean, mm. which is kind of what the councils mm-hmm. are doing. Look, I have no idea what the hypostatic union really, how, how you know, the inner workings of that, <laughs> right. but I know what it's not. Yeah. I know it doesn't mean two persons. I know it doesn't mm-hmm. mean that the natures are confused and so on and so forth. Right. So it's all this mm-hmm. kind of, you know, negative corrections, mm-hmm. um, the setting of the boundaries. So I think, I think if at, if at least you would understand it in terms of setting of the boundaries so that every time we encounter a a divine action, we know that in that divine action, the other two agents 
right? The other two persons are not two separate agents waiting on the sidelines for that action to be completed, but they're all acting together, right? And mm -hmm. I think, I think it it the potential of this doctrine. I mean, what the doctrine has always tried to do, and I've I have not resurrected the drug the doctrine. The doctrine. I don't think the doctrine has been dormant. I think the doctrine. I th I think we just we have just been missing what's been there from you know from the beginning in front of us. I think in Catholic manuals of dogmatics, it's been at the forefront. Um, it's always been affirmed uh, and so on. So for some reason, you know, maybe some historian of doctrine can 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 shed more light as to what as to what precisely happened in Protestantism and evangelicalism that it some somehow slipped from our attention. Mm. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's so. The, I don't think it's nitpicking. Um, it's more like a, an exercise of a theological hermeneutic. How mm. do we interpret divine yes. action? Yes. And in terms of the meaning of the gospel, I'm not sure if I can add anything to, to the kind of the, you know, redemptive history type of thing that I did earlier, what we referred to in the, um, you know, article and the conference, uh, creation, incarnation, atonement, um, uh, Pentecost. So. That's good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You kind of, uh, you answered some of our, some of our questions, uh, before we got to them as we were digging through, <laughs> which was, which is great. Um, and I kind of anticipated that whenever we have guests on, we always, we had, we had Dr. Kim Riddlebarger on a couple months ago to talk about amillennialism and we ask him a question and we're ready for the next four or five and he just proceeds to answer them as a, as a professor <laughs> yeah. and pastor, you know, so <laughs> right. there's a certain, uh, uh know-how. So mm -hmm. as we wrap up, um, folks, be sure to check out, get a copy of the book on Lagos or a uh, hard copy, the same God who works all things inseparable operations in trinitarian theology by dr adonis vidu and adonis do you have any other book recommendations for folks that are looking at either inseparable operations specifically or or more broadly who want a deeper understanding of orthodox trinitarian theology that will that will help them to worship god well more accurately and more uh holistically and also just to to have a better to to have a better grip on it because so much of evangelicalism today you alluded to to social trinitarianism and there's the EFS crowd and so many other errors that have cropped up, uh, particularly in Western evangelicalism. Um, and I know from my own experience, I grew up in a Unitarian background. And so it's been this whole deconstruction and reconstruction of, of rediscovering orthodoxy for me that's probably more extreme than a lot of my peers. But um, mm -hmm. where would you recommend folks turn if they want to they go a little bit further and, and or maybe are looking for something a little more base level? There's so much good stuff out there. Um, there's, I mean, <laughs> really, this is such an exciting time to to mm. be studying Trinitarian theology. I think one of my friends on on in social media uh, pointed that out. The, he was he's doing his PhD on something similar, something that has to do with inseparable operations and the atonement. And he said it's so exciting that so many folks are writing on this. So there's a lot of good stuff out there. Uh, Fred Sanders has written a beautiful book on the Trinity uh, called The Triune God. Uh, Matthew Barrett has written something called Simply Trinity. Um, um, one of my favorites, probably one of my favorite is, uh, is Gilles Emery's um, book, The Trinity. Uh, Emery is a Catholic uh, theologian, um, and he's written this really beautiful, simple, but at the mm -hmm. same time, uh, at the same time, the kind of book that you don't read fast. On the Trinity, it's just called the Trinity. Uh, Catholic University of America Press. Um, I forget what the year is, uh, what year he's written 
written it in. Um, and I know Fred Sanders is also uh, coming out with a book on Trinity and salvation. I'm really looking forward to that. This is going to happen in the fall uh, where he's going to make some of the same connections that I'm making uh, between Trinity and atonement and salvation, I imagine. And I really look forward to see how the conversation is furthered by that book. Um, you know, if you want to, if you want to uh, go back to the Puritans, John, John Owen's communion with the uh, mm. communion with God is yes. outstanding. Um, and um yeah, there's a, there's there's great I mean great books. I mean my own Romanian my own fellow Romanian theologian Dumitru Stanilae has written beautiful beautifully on the Trinity, his experience of God. Great book. Um not exactly social trinitarian Stanilae, but not very far from that. Um I should make one quick clarification here. The the the, the project my own project is is not a is not primarily aimed at social trinitarians. I think there's mm. I'm not friendly to that particular theological position, um, mm. but it wasn't aimed at that, um, right? It's more of a you know positive recovery of this doctrine. You know, I don't want to be anachronistic and sort of project upon the past, you know, a conversation which is a more modern theology. Um, yeah, so tons, ton, ton of good works. Catherine Zondrecker as well. Now, if you're talking dense, not that's dense. Second volume of her of her, of her systematic theology, uh, but really a gem. Mm. In more more ways than one, very some very surprising ways as well. Mm. Man, <laughs> well, you heard it here That's first because we've been we've been recommending uh, some of those books, Barrett's book, uh, okay, been, and a few others over the last couple of weeks because we were doing three episodes on the Trinity. So it was nice to get a broader a broader spectrum. So thank you for that. Right. What are uh, some titles that okay. that that you mentioned that I and and I didn't. We've recommended uh, Matthew Barrett's Simply Trinity, Matthew Reeves' Delighting in the Trinity. Yeah, great book. Really good book. Scott Swain's Introduction to the Trinity. Nice. Of course, uh, Sproul's Mystery of the Trinity. Um, and then James White's Forgotten Trinity. Um, and then, of course, we jumped into classical theism as well. Uh, God Without Passions by Renahan. Uh, James Dolezal's uh, All That Is in God and Is God Without Parts. Uh, both of those. Um, and then, of course... We recommended your book. <laughs> Thank yeah, it's, you. Appreciate it's it. been interesting. Our listeners definitely, we, we've actually seen it in our Facebook group. People say, oh man, I got to stop listening to the podcast. I keep buying books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that happens. Guys, be sure to head over to distillingtheology.com slash giveaway and enter for your opportunity to win a copy of Adonis Fidu's book, The Same God Who Works All Things, Inseparable Operations in Trinitarian Theology, kindly provided for us by Erdman's Publishing Company and a Distilling Theology Glencairn glass. It's been a while since we've given one of those away, and we've been seeing the Small Batch 001 Glencairn's limited edition showing up. Be sure to share those. We love seeing them. Guys, the giveaway runs Tuesday, June 22nd through Friday, July 2nd, and the winner is going to be announced on July 6th episode. Head over to distillingtheology.com slash giveaway. Join now while you still can. That'd be awesome. So be sure to get in on that action. You don't want to miss it. This is a phenomenal book, and we're really grateful to the publisher for providing a copy for us. So Justin, what are we talking about next week? Yes, we are going to uh, do some reflection on theology proper since we've done so many episodes on it at this point. Um I, I like that we're 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 calling it that as though we're done yeah. with the topic, but uh, <laughs> we're probably just scratching the Indeed. surface here. Uh, and we're going to be sipping Talisker yes. Tenure, which I'm excited for. I haven't had a Talisker in a long time, um, so that's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, also, Blake, if people want to get more from us and they want to they want to interact with us, they want to do 
more, where can they where can they reach out, Blake? You can join us over at patreon.com slash distilling theology where you can get discounts in the distilling theology store, extended conversations like the one we're about to have, as well as early release episodes live streamed when we record. Uh, last week's episode with Sam Renahan was out on Patreon a month in advance, uh, and the episode uh, this week um, was out several weeks in advance. So you don't want to miss it. Uh, you also get some exclusive bonus content, and all this for the price of $4.99 per month, uh, less than the price of a grande frappuccino at Starbucks. And also for $14.99 a month, after the first three months, you'll receive an exclusive Patreon-only mug, and we're looking to have some extra conversations during the months. Uh, for those Patreons to, to go a little bit further as um, we're really, really grateful. We couldn't do this podcast without the Patreons, and now we're both uh, rocking our new microphones. So huge shout out to our Patreons for making that possible. And Justin, where else can people get more Distilling Theology? Yeah, guys, if you want to join in the conversation and uh, and, and really enjoy a fellowship with a bunch of sage stage brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, head over to facebook.com. Uh, find us. Uh, we have a page that you can like, Distilling Theology. We also have a group that you can join, also called Distilling Theology. Join us there um, for all kinds of great content and conversation. Also check us out on Instagram at Distilling Theology for great book and drink recommendations, among other things. Um, we have a Twitter. Don't bother, because we don't. Uh, yeah, so social media, that's good stuff. Uh, also, just distillingtheology.com. You can find links to that stuff there, as well as links to giveaways and to our store and all kinds of stuff at distillingtheology.com. Blake, somehow, and in some way, by the providence of God, we have remained teamed up with whom? The Society of Reformed Podcasters, a network of doctrinally sound podcasts from a Reformed perspective including Assurance of Pardon, the Bobcast, Christ in Context, Distilling Theology, Fast God Stuff, Five Points Church Planting Podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude, Reformed Brotherhood, Reformed Pilgrims, Restless, Seeker Start, Sippin' on Theology, Steady Anchor, and the Particular Baptist Podcast. You can subscribe to all these shows, get the entire back catalog at reformedpodcasts.com. And also, we would highly commend you check out the companion interview to this, I say that a little tongue-in-cheek, uh, but in a seriousness, go listen to Tony Arsenal's interview with Dr. Vidu at Reformed Brotherhood. We tried to parse out the episode a little bit differently so that it genuinely is different content. We didn't want to just rehash that, um, and I thought he had a really good conversation that's in some ways more technical, and we tried to keep yes. it a little bit more distilled and introductory. So listen to us, go listen to that, uh, and, and check out the rest of the shows in the society. They're great. We love them. We do. We do indeed. So whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria. Guys, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Enjoy this sneak peek of the extended episode available exclusively at patreon.com slash distilling theology. I think in, a, in appropriation, well, what's happening is that we get a deeper semantic depth into the nature of the Trinity, where we only know each of the persons, but only in the context of their common being and their common operation. Never never sort of plucked out away from it and individualized. Hmm. So that's how I'm kind of, yeah. you know, trying to, I'm giving this paper at ETS uh, in, in the fall on appropriation. I, and I, I want to talk about appropriation as, as uh, spiritual knowledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I really think it's, I think it's something that's not just propositional. It's a tasting, so. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. 
No, that's 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 a great that's analogy. That's gonna make yeah. the Patreon tag because that's our whole that's our program. <laughs> yeah, every week we sit here and we sip things and we we yeah. especially when we have our distiller part time co host Eric come on, he pulls out ten times as many notes as we do. Uh-huh. <laughs>